0: This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security for June 5th, 2020. Apple patches a vulnerability that allowed jailbreaking, adds a way to protect your phone from unlocking with Face ID. Scams are now taking advantage of the COVID-19 pandemic and Google is sued for five billion dollars. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intigo's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning,
1: Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well, Kirk. How are you? I'm doing great. I want you to share the anecdote that you shared with me before we started recording about how you got into... Computer security. This what twenty five years ago?
2: It was uh, it was a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> I think the first time that I ever really thought much about computer security, about malware, and which was really just called viruses at that time, uh, was that I had a cousin who showed me a book that he had checked out from the library or something that was called "Computer Viruses: Artificial Life and Evolution" by Mark Ludwig, and. Uh, So this book is all about polymorphic viruses. And it's basically the the idea behind this is that uh, viruses – could adapt and change themselves so that they could avoid detection, so they could evolve and you know become a new thing. And so the a lot of the book was talking about sort of theories about, well, what actually defines life? And does that mean that these viruses that can change themselves are alive? Um, and it was a pretty interesting book. And that was probably one of the first things that got me interested in computer security, looking back on it. At the time, I probably didn't think too much about it, but I still remember that book. And uh, a few years, uh, I don't know, several years ago, I bought a copy of it just to have on my bookshelf. So that's what brought that conversation up, (laughs) why Kirk and I were talking about it. Right, because
1: we could see the book on the bookshelf behind you. Yep. Um, Yeah, I find that fascinating. I, I, back then, I wasn't really thinking about that stuff. But we'll talk about that stuff another day, because we've got so much news today, that this is going to be pretty much an all news episode, I think. Um, I think the first important news is well, it's important to some people. Uh, we, last week we talked about the vulnerability that allowed people to jailbreak iOS 13.5. Well, boom, Apple has patched the vulnerability with a supplemental iOS 13.5 update, and you can't jailbreak anymore.
2: Yeah, iOS 13.5.1 is already available and it does patch that jailbreak vulnerability. Um, I don't know if we really talked about it much last week, but it's worth noting when we talk about a vulnerability that allows somebody to jailbreak that's something that isn't necessarily something that is widely being exploited in the wild. It's just something that these particular developers who make these jailbreaks know about, and then they're leveraging that in order to do what they want to with the operating system. Basically they're exploiting a vulnerability for the purpose of something that uh, is intended to be beneficial to give you for you know deeper access into the operating system, but that same vulnerability could be used by a bad guy to do something malicious and say infect your device with malware. So that's why Apple has the need to patch these things quickly as soon as they are discovered. and uh, <laughs> it's not necessarily so much that Apple's just trying to keep people from jailbreaking because they don't like the jailbreak community, although that probably is true too.
1: You pointed out something, though, that in Apple's information about this, they attribute the discovery of the vulnerability to the group who created the jailbreaking software. Does that mean that that group gave the information to Apple? That would surprise me.
2: No, I don't think so. I, in fact, I think Apple has done this before, um, where they've credited... Maybe they're just trolling them? <laughs> maybe. Yeah, they kind of give credit to the jailbreaker, you know, or the jailbreak community and say, oh, yeah, they reported this vulnerability. But I don't think it was so much that, like, they went to Apple with the vulnerability as, as it was that, well, they started using that vulnerability, which is how Apple became aware of it.
1: So maybe if Apple's running the jailbreak software on an iPhone, they can keep a log and they can find how the vulnerability is being exploited. Would that be possible?
2: Oh yeah. So basically, yeah, what Apple can do if they aren't sure about the details of whatever vulnerability is being exploited, they can reverse engineer it and figure out what exactly they're doing and then block it in the next iOS update or macOS.
1: In other news, there is a sign-in with Apple flaw that was discovered and fixed. Now, sign-in with Apple, you know, I've only seen this a couple of times so far. This is the thing that lets you sign in with your Apple account uh, with a randomized uh, email address. And so an Indian developer discovered a flaw and got $100,000 for it.
2: Yeah, this is a success story, really. This is why we have bug bounty programs and why we're happy that Apple has a bug bounty program. So essentially what this guy figured out is that uh, Apple does some things to sort of validate that you are who you say you are. That's the kind of the whole purpose of signing with Apple, right? Um, And there was a step missing in this validation chain. So when they're verifying your identity, there's there's kind of a couple of steps in the process. And on the second step, they didn't actually check to see if you're still the same person as on the first step. And so basically what that meant is that somebody with sort of a, maybe a privileged network position, maybe somebody who's already got access in some way to your device, uh, maybe they're already kind of tapping into your communications and spying on you. Um, if they could inject a request in between there, after that first validation, they can basically pretend to be anybody else, which is kind of right. scary. You don't want a vulnerability like that, because that means anybody could pretend to be anybody else. Right. So, um, so this was a pretty serious one. And thankfully, um, it was reported to Apple, he got the I think the maximum payout that Apple offers $100,000 or the equivalent in his uh, currency. So that was uh, a pretty cool uh, way to make some, some good cash. And, uh, I'm waiting for you to discover a vulnerability, <laughs> Josh. You know, I have reported vulnerabilities to Apple before. They did credit me once for a service vulnerability uh, that I reported to them. And this was way before they had a bug bounty program. So I might have been able to get a little money. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> there was no bug bounty program at the time.
1: You should, like, take your weekends and start hunting for bugs to, you know, it could be interesting.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, maybe. I'll think about we'll try that. Try and
1: find some polymorphic viruses while you're out <laughs> there. Um, ju- just to finish up on this particular vulnerability, mm-hmm. Apple says that it investigated server logs and found no evidence that the vulnerability was exploited in the wild. In other words, they didn't inhale. Uh, Apple would not come out and say that they
2: did find evidence if it was in the wild, would they? Um, well, they might. I mean, a lot of companies are being a little more transparent these days with things like that. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, you don't know. You you know that Apple has found no evidence in their logs of this. That doesn't I don't know if that necessarily means that it never happened. It just means that they haven't found evidence of it. Uh, right, You know, I don't know how right. complete you Apple's prove a logs are. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. Hard, it's much harder to prove a negative. So, um, yeah, if they had said, oh, we found evidence of this, well, okay, great. You found it in your logs. But to, for them to say we didn't find evidence of this doesn't necessarily mean it didn't happen.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, just a reminder today, uh, if you have an iPhone with Face ID, you may be in a situation in the current climate and the current atmosphere where you don't want a third party to pick up your phone and hold it in front of your face to unlock it. Not getting into any specific situations, but um, we're just going to put a link in the show notes to an Apple technical document to temporarily disable Face ID. Press and hold the side button and either volume button for two seconds. After the sliders appear, press the side button immediately to lock the phone. So press and hold two, press again. And you can do this with the phone in your pocket. Now, the next time you unlock your iPhone with your passcode, Face ID will be enabled again. Uh, so if you really want to turn it off permanently, go to settings, Face ID and passcode, and then turn it off. But this just prevents, you know, certain people who might want to look at your phone when you're, I don't know, can't move your hands, for example.
2: Yeah. We, we've mentioned this before, but, um, it, it is a good idea. If, and this works with anybody who might be, um, trying to, to grab your phone from you, maybe, someone is approaching you in a parking lot or something like that. And, you know, you can reach into your pocket wherever you've got your phone and, you know, hit this key press combination and make sure that, let's say, if they do something to you, they can't hold the phone up to your face uh, to unlock it and get right. into it. Yeah, so it's it's a very useful thing to to know. Um, get, everyone should memorize this key, key combination uh, for their particular device to make sure that uh, uh, that doesn't happen to them.
1: Okay, we've got two stories this week about end to end encryption. And I think people who aren't involved with computers at any serious level don't understand what end to end encryption is and how it works. So the first article is from the BBC. The BBC World Service Director calls for trusted news access to chat apps. Now, the BBC World Service is radio and TV broadcast around the world. And this gentleman, Jamie Angus, is essentially talking about misinformation and fake news that spread, and he's particularly uh, pointing at WhatsApp, which has WhatsApp groups, which I'm told are very, very popular in countries like India. So here's what he says. On a page, it's easy to search and uncover disinformation. So we can imagine the BBC is looking around to find disinformation because they have so much time and they want to, you know, say something against it. He continues, one of the really difficult things about chat apps, and particularly WhatsApp, is that the material is end-to-end encrypted. It can't be searched, and it is often very hard for us to find that something has been circulated until literally millions of people had seen it. Now, I'm scratching my head that all he thinks end-to-end encryption is for is searching in WhatsApp. It's not like getting your email or using internet banking or any other type of messaging.
2: Yeah, when I first was looking at this article, I was scratching my head, <laughs> trying to figure out. Okay, first of all, what is he saying that he wants? And so, I, I, I guess what he's saying is that he wants the BBC to have access to search through all communications that are happening on WhatsApp, so they can find potential fake news stories that so, right. they that. That the BBC would hire somebody to sit there and search through all of WhatsApp just right. so they could try to find fake news and then they could refute it, uh, inject themselves into conversations or whatever with like, no, here's the facts. That's really bizarre. I, I, I guess he's, it, there's a lot of hubris in this. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. I, I think he, he sort of seems to be thinking about this as though it's sort of like a public Facebook group uh you know, conversation or like a, you know, old school forum discussion or something yeah. like that, a public forum. Yeah. And that's not what WhatsApp is being used for. This is something that people are using for private communications. The whole reason in many cases why people are using WhatsApp groups is because people outside of that group can't see what's being discussed. Um, f- exactly. For example, um, you know, I, I know of uh, a community where there are users of WhatsApp who have their own WhatsApp group where they have conversations about what goes on at their children's school, and they don't necessarily want the, the principal or the teachers yeah. to be able to get access to that group and see what they're talking about because they might not – you know, like what they see. And so the whole point is privacy of, of these communications. And uh, obviously, if someone, if some random employee that hire, is hired by the BBC, no matter what, you know, how well they vetted them, you don't want some random person to be able to find out what you're talking about in your private conversation.
1: Yeah. And plus any kind of backdoor like that will be exploited by others. Yeah. Um, and we've, we've discussed this many times. The whole point of end to end encryption is that it is secure, and once one person can get in, it's no longer secure. Yep. In the second story about end-to-end encryption is this week's Zoom Zinger. We haven't had one of those in a couple of weeks. Zoom's pledge to work with law enforcement spurs online blowback. So Zoom came out and said, in order to allow law enforcement, um, particularly the FBI, to be able to see what people are doing on Zoom, that people with free accounts will not be able to use end-to-end encryption. And th- this seriously? Seriously? I mean, so here's let's think about this. I have a paid account, and I've started a meeting with someone who has a free account. Does that get end-to-end encryption? I would assume it does. Someone has a free account, and they start a meeting with me, but I've got a paid account. It doesn't get end-to-end encryption. This is how I think it would have to work. I think this is just incredibly stupid.
2: Well, yeah, and I I guess the reason behind this is they want to sort of – for – Law enforcement purposes, right? To help to benefit law enforcement. I think their thinking is if somebody has a free account, then they're totally anonymous. And, you know, um, if they have paid for Zoom, then we have at least their payment details. And so we can basically identify who they are if law enforcement is asking. And so, I mean, I guess that's the reason why they're doing this. Um, but honestly. You know, if you're going to be using Zoom for illegal business, you know, conducting, you know, illicit transactions or something, I mean, Zoom is not the platform to use for that anyway, right? <laughs>
1: no, you'd use something like Signal or you'd use WhatsApp or any of a number of platforms and messages, Apple's messages. Um, Zoom, is, Zoom is like it's become the platform for everyone, because of so many people using it to keep in touch with friends and family or using it for meetings since they're working from home. It doesn't seem like the kind of platform that criminals would want to use. But see, what they're saying here and what gets me is that they're assuming that anyone who is using it could potentially be a criminal. And this opens up all of the surveillance issues that, you know, people in computer security generally also are very concerned about privacy. And so there are real privacy
2: issues here. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So just something to be aware of if you're using Zoom. Again, we've said before, don't assume that your communications on Zoom are necessarily going to be completely private.
1: Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll have some more pretty interesting news.
0: If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Intego's new Mac user center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get 40% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9, Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from intego.com today and then use the promo code podcast 20 at checkout to save 40%. That's podcast 20 to save 40% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today.
1: Okay, so a little bit more news. Now, Uh, Many countries have developed contact tracing systems for people with COVID-19, and the NHS here in the UK has developed a system, and the Telegraph is reporting NHS contact tracing undermined by hackers sending fraudulent warnings to public. Now, I, I looked into this since I live here, and basically people are going to call you if you've been in contact with someone. So you get tested positive. You tell someone who you've been in contact with. They're going to call or email or text you and eventually tell you to go to a website, which is contact-tracing.the.gov.uk. Tell me that that doesn't look like a URL that could be exploited. I mean, to start with, the callers could be scammers. And so one of the reports of scams is that um, someone calls up and says that, um, okay, the test is going to cost 500 pounds. And the person responds, but this is the NHS. It's free. No, no, no. It's 500 pounds. I need a credit card number. So at the first level, some people are going to get tricked into paying for a test that they shouldn't have to pay. Remember, this is universal health care. You don't pay um, for things like that. And the second thing is just the whole scam. Uh, we talked a few weeks ago about my friend who's very computer savvy, who got scammed and lost $500 from his bank account. Scammers are going to just jump all over
2: this. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Uh, when it comes to phone calls, well, and text messages for that matter, uh, just plain SMS text messages, there's not really um, any good way to validate that whoever someone claims to be is who they really are. With phone calls, when you get an incoming phone call, it's certainly possible for somebody to mask the, the phone number that they're calling from to make it appear some to be someone else. Um, for example, this happens to me all the time where I get spam messages that start out with the same area code and three-digit prefix that my phone number has. So the only difference is the last four digits of the phone number. And uh they do this very specifically to make it look legitimate. So you'll actually pick up and you're, you know, if you get some phone call from a random area code, you're not going to answer. Um And so th- the point I'm trying to make here is that it's very easy to spoof who a phone call is, you know, coming from, you can pretend to be someone else. And so even if a scammer, you know, didn't do that. The whole idea with social engineering is that you're trying to trick people and often you're exploiting a fear that they might have. So in this case, the fear that, oh my gosh, I might be infected. I might have COVID-19, right? And so the idea is you're, you're calling somebody up, you're claiming to be from some organization uh, that that's legitimate and has a reason to be contacting you about this, and then you can do or say anything. You can tell them to to go to this website. You can click on you know send them an email and have them click on a link, and you can do whatever you want. You can infect their system. You can fish for their username and password for whatever service you want, just by scaring them a little bit and making them believe that you are who you say you are. So th- that's the problem with with any system like this. And uh, it it's it's just a it's a tough problem to solve because w- especially when someone is scared, they're less likely to be paying close attention to the details and they're more likely to f- to fall for scams.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the things is that the URL in question is a bit tricky a hyphen and three dots in there. I mean, yeah. that's, that's if someone's complicated... telling you over the phone. It's easy to make a mistake. Uh, if they're sending it by email, it's easy to put a fake URL and, and phishing and copy the code from the website. I think what they need to do is have a massive advertising campaign that says, if you're called, go to nhs.uk. And there should be a big link on the top of contact tracing. And it's not, the link on the top is just about COVID-19 information. You click that, you have a number of things about COVID-19, including contact tracing. But I think they need to do an advertising campaign to explain to people where you should go. Don't ever go to a link that someone tells you to type over the phone, nhs.uk, easy to remember. Uh, originally, it was nhs.gov.uk, but they also have the .uk. Um, you were saying before the show that that people here are more likely to have double dot domains
2: like .co.uk right. .gov.uk unlike in the states. Right. So I guess at least people there are a little bit more used to having a couple of dots and <laughs> but you know interestingly I don't know if this is the same case for you but when I in Google Chrome type nhs.uk it does a Google search instead of going directly to the site. And then it gives me a little bar I can click on. Do you mean to go to http colon slash slash nhs.uk?
1: It could be my location is giving it to me directly, but I can try in Google Chrome and see what happens because I usually use Safari, as we've said before. So nhs.uk. And yes, indeed, it gives me a Google search. That's interesting.
2: Huh, I wonder why Google treats that URL differently as though you're trying to search for something.
1: I was going to say, because the message is, did you mean to go to HTTP colon slash slash nhs.uk? Uh-huh. Notice not, did you mean to go to HTTPS, uh-huh. um, but that's kind of odd. That's kind of interesting.
2: Yeah. Huh. I wonder why Google is doing that. Because there's a lot of .uk. It, it used to be that you, you would only have dot uk, and now you actually do have a lot of yeah. .something.uk sites, I think
1: initially you couldn't buy a .uk domain.
2: Right. It was reserved for the government. Right. So the fact that Google is doing this is sort of bizarre. A weird little side note there, but I thought that was interesting. Yeah. If
1: I type apple.uk, for example, in my browser, it it um, resolves to apple.com slash UK. So Apple owns that domain. Anyway, we've got a Google story here. Google's been uh, sued for $5 billion. $5 billion. I love these class action suits. They just make up a big number. Uh, But this is an interesting class action suit because they're claiming that Google has invaded the privacy of millions of users by tracking their internet use when their browsers were in private or incognito mode. And we've discussed this many times about how you're much safer in incognito mode and things like cookies aren't saved after you close a session, etc. But apparently Google has been able to access data from users even when they're in incognito mode. Now uh, there's, in this article, there's not a lot of detail, and I haven't looked into it. Obviously, they're using cookies even when you're in incognito mode. It doesn't block cookies. It just means the cookies aren't saved, right? So if you're in incognito mode in one site and uh, Google Analytics sets a cookie and you go to another site, it's going to be read by Google Analytics. But the difference is that in incognito, it shouldn't know anything about you to be able to attach that information to your more global profile. Am I correct?
2: Yeah, I, I, I guess the, the concern that people have is when they hear something like incognito or private browsing mode, they assume that this means that they are completely private and that there's nothing anybody can do to track them when they're using that mode. And that's not at all how these modes work. Uh, and, and so I think that's where this, uh, you know, this idea came from, uh, pe- people just have an assumption that there's going to be privacy and it's not 100% privacy. What incognito mode does just like any private browsing mode and other browsers is essentially it treats it like a separate browsing session. And as soon as you close, not remember not just that window, but all private browsing windows in that browser, once they're all closed, then it gets rid of whatever cookies were saved by those websites. But in the meantime, you go to one site and another site and another tab or another private browsing window in the same browser. And your cookies are saved across that incognito session. So it is it is certainly possible to track you from one site to the next during that session.
1: Let me let me just give an interesting example. Imagine that um, you think this is totally private. So you open an incognito tab in the morning and you leave it open all day. And at some point during the day, you go to check your Gmail account.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: So all that information that you've been collecting during the day in incognito mode is going to be attached to your profile once you check your Gmail account, right? Well,
2: theoretically, it could be, yeah. Um I I, I don't know that that's exactly how Google behaves when it comes to – like, I know if you're already signed into your Gmail account and and then you open up another tab and you do a search – those searches are going to be associated with your Google account. I don't know if it works the other way around, um, but it certainly okay, could. So be. let's say you
1: check Gmail first thing in the morning in a in an incognito tab, yep. and then you go browsing. So all of that's going to be linked to your profile.
2: Yes, absolutely, one hundred percent.
1: So yeah, so what you're saying is interesting that people think that incognito mode is private, whereas it's not, and the only thing that works is like tracker blockers, ad blockers, uh, VPNs, etc.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it, this all comes from a misunderstanding of like what exactly private browsing or incognito mode means and that it's not really as private as you might expect it to be. It's not, it's not 100% anonymizing you. And you, you know, when you go to websites, your IP address that, that is the address of, uh, usually your home router or whatever, that is still visible to sites. And they know who you are from that perspective too. Okay, last story, and this isn't an
1: iOS story, but I found this really interesting. The BBC is reporting that a particular photo can break some Android phones. It's, it's a pretty, a very attractive photo, actually, of a sort of a sunset over a lake in the mountains and clouds. And it's quite nice. And apparently, if you set this as wallpaper for certain... Android phones, including Samsung, Google Pixel, etc., it can brick your phone, and it can brick it so bad that you may have to reset it to factory settings.
2: Yeah, we thought this was worth mentioning just because we've talked about a number of these, you know, iMessage uh, bombs. Uh, where, where yeah, s- <laughs> with funny characters from different languages. Yeah, right. Things where in the past people have been able to send you a text message with some specially crafted, you know, uh, characters. And in a particular order and then that crashes and reboots your iPhone and uh of course you know android users sometimes really like to to make fun of uh, iphone users when that kind of thing happens but guess what it can also happen to android users too uh, or something very similar to that, which is kind of what this is. So you might come across this image in a tweet, or maybe someone will text it to you and say, "This is really cool. Make this your wallpaper." And if you actually do it, then you're stuck because the next time you know you you look at your uh, your wallpaper, you go back to your home screen, um, then your device is going to crash and reboot. And when it reboots. You're going to get to your wallpaper again and it's going to crash and reboot and you'll be stuck in this loop forever.
1: So the reason why this is happening is that there is something called color spaces in photos and and other sorts of graphic documents. And there are different color spaces that are supported by different devices. Um, RGB is the most, uh, the most common color space. Apple uses Uh, Something called DCIP3, which is an extended color gamut color space. Basically, a color space defines how a computing device reads color information in a file and then displays it. What's interesting is that uh, the code that allows you to view this photo, either in an email or a text message on Android, has no problem displaying it. But the code that's being used for the wallpaper is having a problem with this color space. And this is why you have to reset it to factory settings because you can't reboot the phone without that wallpaper, once you've set that wallpaper.
2: Right. So it's a bit of a tricky one to fix. Um, (laughs) Well, especially because, as as we have, I'm sure everybody has heard, that it's a little bit difficult um, with the Android operating system to get updates because a a lot of times the manufacturers of uh, of these phone models like to add their own stuff to you know, to uh, Android rather than just have it plain vanilla Android. And so uh, you have to wait for your phone manufacturer, in many cases, to release an update for your model. And um, so this is going to take a while to patch. And, and of course, there are going to be devices that are never going to get a patch for this, too. So something to be aware of if, if you are an Android user. If someone asks you to set a wallpaper, don't do it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, because if it's a specific color space, anyone can take any photo
2: and apply that color space in a graphics editor. Exactly. It doesn't have to be this uh, particular one that's going around with the, the nice, beautiful mountains and clouds and such. Yeah. Well, that's enough news for this week. This has been a pretty busy week, hasn't it? Yeah, I'd say there's been a lot of things in the security and privacy world recently. We really even didn't get a chance to cover every story that's out there, but um, we hope that our selection has been useful to you.
1: Okay, until next week, Josh, stay secure. All
2: right, stay secure.
0: Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com.